When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the Love Tennis podcast and thank you for joining us for the first time. If this is your first time, I'm James Gray of the iNews.co.uk. As always, I'm here with George Belshaw and Calvin Beton for a look back at what's been an incredibly eventful first week of the US Open. Um, I feel like every time we've had a Grand Slam this year, I've come on and started a podcast by saying, what a week, we've never had it before, but I'm afraid it has been rather dramatic. Um, We'll, of course, be looking at Toilet Gate, uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas, who maybe has single-handedly gone from the most popular player in tennis to the least popular player in tennis. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz with a breakout performance, not news to anyone who's a regular listener. Um, Andy Murray looking every bit of Grand Slam player, but just falling short in the first round. Emma Raducanu, Dan Evans, Naomi Osaka, of course. Ash Barty is out. Uh, we'll look at all of that and more because it's been an extremely busy seven days. And we'll try and look ahead to the second week. But as always, I should preface it by the fact that we're recording this on Sunday night. There is tennis ongoing as we speak. Uh, George's Bottich van der Zandschloop is currently two sets to one up on De- uh, Diego Schwartzman. I always call him Dennis there. Um, George, how have you found the first week? I mean, so this is, I guess, pretty unique for you because you weren't working this week as a tennis journalist. Yeah, it's been strange. So I started my new job last week. Um, and obviously, the US Open is quite a good one for like working life in terms of it only starts about 4 p.m. Yeah every day so i've actually been able to sit around and watch a fair yeah. bit um not not every single night but I, I caught most of like the friday night stuff which i thought was one of the best nights of tennis i can remember in a long time and I, i'm yeah. sure i've said that quite a few times this year as well as you kind of alluded to earlier but <laughs> it really was something it was just loads of great matches all happening at once um and yeah as you say it's just it's just quite nice watching it not thinking oh man, how am I going to cover this? You know, like Alcaraz, Sissipas, you know, that that's a prime example when that's coming down to the end of a fifth set. You don't know who's going to win it. At that point, you're kind of writing two reports at yeah. once. So it's just cool to move away, just enjoy it. Um, so yeah, I'm really... Yes, that's one of, those, one of those journalist things where quite often you'll go to an event or have covered an event and someone will say, oh, that must have been amazing. And you're like, no, it was a bloody nightmare. Like <laughs> that level of imagine being a journalist at like the nineteen ninety nine Champions League final. It's like, oh, that must have been amazing to be there. No, it's like your actual worst nightmare <laughs> in two goals in the last minute to reverse the result. Yeah, I've probably um, said this like a thousand times, but my mantra in tennis by the end was like in tennis journalism that is was I'm just supporting whoever wins the first set. I want this over. <laughs> I don't want to rewrite anything. Just quit everything. And yeah. I mean, that's that's a nice habit to have broken out of this week. Yeah, very good. And Calvin, um, you've obviously seen many more US Opens than many, many more, I should say, than George or I. But I mean, it's a pretty dramatic first week, really, isn't it? Yeah, just just to sort of come on what George said there about supporting whoever wins the first set. That's pretty much what every tennis coach and player who's on tour does as well. Like when they're <laughs> playing, if they're like 
they're like fourth on the schedule. Suddenly you become hugely invested in whoever wins the first set in any of those matches. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been yeah, it's been a decent tournament, hasn't it? I think it's um, well because I remember you saying quite recently that the thirty-two seed thing has kind of killed off the first week of a lot of slams. Yeah, um, and this isn't it's, this hasn't been the case in that. Like that. No, but I think that they've the, the court speed, as as you were saying the other day. Now, WhatsApp group James has has changed a lot on the men's side. I think it's it's offered a different sort of it's offered a lot of variation. We've got a lot of different players coming in. That the same yeah. week as as the big servers are coming through, you you've still currently got like Diego Schwartzman uh, mm. battling away to go maybe into the quarterfinals. Um, yeah, Dan Evans types of those types of players, and at the same time you got Riley Opelka playing, which is how a tennis tournament should be, isn't it? Yeah, like you should have these variations of styles. We've 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 had too long where basically the baseline, the big hitting baseline players are the ones that have prevailed. And yeah, I think it's been a decent tournament. Um, mm. Looking forward to see what the second week brings. Yeah, um, a little bit less frantic, obviously, the second week uh, as always. Um, it's hard to know where to start. It feels like we're going backwards a bit to talk about Stefanos Tsitsipas, but it was all anyone talked about for about four days, and frankly, still is. Um, of course, if you missed it somehow because you were in the loo, appropriately enough, um, Stefan Tsitsipas beat Andy Murray in the first round in a, a five-set thriller. Um, he took two lengthy toilet breaks, which I believe were clocked at seven and a half minutes and eight minutes, respectively. Um, Murray was extremely unhappy. He, he said to his box on court that he was literally cheating. Um, he spoke afterwards and says that it wasn't, wasn't right. Uh, he went on Twitter the next day. I, I liked this from Murray to really double down on things because he, he had an angry press conference late at night after losing, which everyone's capable of doing. And then he'd gone home, gone to bed, woken up and had another pop uh, on Twitter saying, fact of the day, if it takes Stefanos Tsitsipas twice as long to go to the bathroom as it takes Jeff Bezos to fly into space. Interesting. Um, I mean, George, this has sparked uh, an almighty hoo-ha uh, the like of which I can't remember when it comes to toilets and sport. Where do you stand on it? It's, it's funny you mentioned kind of Murray doubling down on it because I think he says in the press conference, I was talking to the ATP guys and I, I didn't want to come tonight because I know it's all that's going to be driven about this match and like it's not the only reason I lost it and it shouldn't be the sole focus or whatever. But and then for him to sleep on it and come back, it just shows how, how annoying it was. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure we spoke about this the other week, didn't we? Kind of... Um, these long breaks and I kind of gave this solution where I thought let's have let's install these breaks and kind of cut yeah. the changeovers um I, I still kind of stand by that as a principle I, I the idea of someone leaving for 10 minutes doesn't bother me as long as it's a scheduled 10 minutes I think just the issue at the minute is most people are treating it as a three or four minute dash and then Sisabas is a regular offender just going out for eight minutes and, and to be fair actually it, to be fair in inverted commas in his match against Alcaraz, I think when he was booed off court, um, when he left, he then came back pretty sharpish in about three and a half minutes. So hmm. it's kind of shiny candidate. Um, it's obviously what I just what I just found interesting about that particular toilet break was well, a number of things. A, he went off court, didn't put a mask on, went did his business, came back, and then as he got back onto the court, put his mask on for about eight seconds and then took it off again, which I just you know, and, and like sort of ambled his way through the underbelly of the court. And then when he got into public again, you know, started doing a jog like he was in a rush. I just, I thought it was very telling kind of, you know, the reality of the situation and, and maybe the uh, the superficiality of it, so to speak. Um, I mean, we'll maybe mention Stefanos's viewpoint on COVID and, and vaccines later, but sorry to come back to your toilet point. Yeah, I mean... I, I was just going to say, I think it's it's definitely got to him as well. Like he's created yeah. this kind of big problem of his own making. You know, this started in, well, it's, it's happened before, but, you know, it really kicked off in Cincinnati. So coming into the US Open, this mm -hmm. was already a big talking point and a big thing. And Murray will have seen it after this match with Zverev. Um, and Zverev obviously was accusing him of basically getting texted by his dad on the toilet, which is obviously a pretty... Uh, Serious charge, seriously, again, in inverted commas, serious within the tennis world. You know, it's not yeah. the end of the world if that is what he's doing. But uh, also, it's also virtually impossible for, for Zverev to have any clue that that's happened. Yeah. 
I mean, there was that there was that great clip on Amazon, wasn't there, when they were showing it, where they showed Sisyphus going to the toilet, and then his dad just frantically texting. On his phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the images didn't look great if you were like prosecuting that case. Um, yeah, but yeah, but circumstantial at best. It should be pointed out. Yeah, certainly not one hundred percent, but. Yeah, I mean, he's saying it takes him eight minutes to kind of just change every single item of clothing he's wearing. Um, perhaps we could try I mean, and do that in one podcast. We'll get Calvin to strip off and <laughs> put all the clothes up and walk to the court and kind of time it and just see how, how long it takes. Well, I mean, I mean in- I'm, not, I'm not six foot four and I have substantially less hair than Stephen. Okay, the headband change, yeah. <laughs> got, we'll grow our hair long for six months on the New games and we'll, uh, we'll get on with that. I mean, I, I I do have some sympathy because that Murray match, I don't remember seeing two men as sweaty as that. Like, like not in tennis anyway. Um, they they was just, you know, they were, <laughs> I was watching it actually with my, my partner and uh, she doesn't really watch tennis. I don't understand why she didn't go into the other room and put her iPad on. But she was just like, why are they letting them wear white? I can see everything. All I can see is Andy Murray's balls. And she was right. Like, it was <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so they, they were very, very sweaty. And, it, you know, it has been very humid in New York with, with its kind of storm season there, as far as I can tell. So it has been, like, hard work. Um, and I have some sympathy for that. But, I mean, Calvin, you must know. You must know that there are players who will do this at your level. And, you know, it, it just becomes a known thing X, Y, and Z always takes a massive break after he loses a set. Um, yeah, I, I've got a particular story about this, if you want it. Um, of course. From, uh, from Cuba. I was once coaching a player in Cuba, and he played a lad from Peru um, who was notorious for this kind of thing. And he'd won the, the other, this lad had won the first set um, and was cruising the match, really. And then the lad who I coached ended up winning the second set, having saved match points on a tie break. And at this this minute, there was about 40 minutes of light left, I would mm. say. It was late on in the night, maybe 45, 50 minutes. And so the guy goes, um, I want a toilet break. So he had a toilet break and it was back in. The toilets were, the toilets were a good five-minute walk away, but he took 15 minutes to come <laughs> back from the toilet. Immediately as he came back from the toilet, he went, I need a medical timeout. And um, <laughs> the umpire said, you can't have a medical timeout. Like, you, you're not even injured. He was like, I need a medical timeout. And it, the umpire wouldn't let him. So he was like, right, I want the referee. So they had to call the referee, which oh took God. 10 minutes. So this was 25 minutes before the, the, since the last set had finished. So eventually the, the referee said, you can have a medical timeout, but like, we're probably not going to be worth it now with the light. And he was like, right, it's too dark. I want to stop playing now. And he goes like, no, there's still 25 minutes of light left. You can't stop playing yet. And he's like, right, okay. So he played one game and then goes, I need the toilet. (laughs) I went to the toilet again. Long story short, they played one game in 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) He came back back the next day and he won 6-2. And it was serious. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing. So what I'm getting at there is, it happens and players manipulate the rules. The problem is the rules, players will manipulate them. And it went a bit unnoticed, actually, but in the match, Murray said, I noticed it, heard him saying it, he said it's like playing under 12s. And that's yeah. kind of what I thought um, as it's going on. This is what really winds me up a bit about Pass. Like, all round, he, he, it's this sort of thing like the, the getting coaching, if he is, which I suspect he is, um, or little tips and... The, the extended toilet breaks when there's when he's when he's down in matches it's just a bit junior tennis if i'm honest mm. i mean he's, he's openly getting coached every match he gets penalized yeah. for it more than anyone else i mean there's no great stretch to say they're going to try and communicate they, they kind of do I it mean, openly as well but um yeah i mean the, the one thing i'll say is that i'll caveat a bit because as usual with these situations it's not black and white and think somebody's pulled out an example of Andy Murray actually doing something pretty similar um, earlier in earlier in his career against uh, Harsh Mankad, an Indian player. I don't know whether people have seen it on Twitter, but it was going around. Um, he basically the other guy was um, a set and five two up in the tie break, and Murray called for a medical timeout um, at five two wow. in the tie break. Um, ended up winning the tie break and winning the match. Um, he also used to have a bit of a reputation of having these medical timeouts at awkward moments for his opponent. Um, 
and as well, also what I will say, which again has gone unnoticed, the game in which they came, which City Pass came back on with Murray serving, uh, Murray was 40-15 up in that game. So the idea that it, it slowed him down and he, he, he had to get himself going again, he did get himself going and still lost the game. He was 40-15 mm-hmm. up, then got broke. Um, but overall, I entirely agree with what Murray was doing. It was also excellent. As we know, I like a bit of good bit of shit housing in common in um press conference and that kind of thing so thought that was brilliant um more of that please yeah i don't know why this has popped into my head but i've just just been reminded from calvin's monologue there that i i probably uh receive one of the most notorious and angriest responses to a player once uh, uh the now retired maria sharapova i once asked her she got booed by some aussie fans after coming back on um, on court after about I think seven and a half minutes, uh, I asked her, "Oh, how did it feel being booed by those people when you came back on court?" And she didn't she like, claim that she wasn't getting booed? No, no, she just turned on me. She just went, "What do you want me to say to that?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I shouted out the truth. <laughs> she just turned away and looked absolutely furious. So, yeah, I've not been on her Christmas card list since. Not that it was before. I'd say whose Christmas card list you are on, though, George, for the moment, anyway, is Patrick Muritoglu. And um, I thought it was interesting. Uh, we are tennis, uh, who are a Twitter account. I don't, I mean, they're quite big, 130 odd thousand people. I'll be honest, I don't really know them very well. But anyway, they, they tweeted a bit of a joke about, like, they tweeted a picture of US Open organizers if Tsitsipas wants to leave the court with a toilet out of order sign. And it was obviously after he was beaten by um, Carlos Alcaraz. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, but Patrick sort of quote tweeted it and said, not pretty to hit a man when he's down, always feels safer to rally the pack. Uh, and then he also kind of invoked the the mental health kind of card, I suppose, for, without wanting to kind of diminish that. Uh, someone mentioned in the uh, in the replies, I think, borderline bullying. Um and he said, well, thank you for bringing that up. Interesting to note the world is very much rightly into mental health and the same people who advocate it would bully the players. I mean, I think this is pretty thin-skinned. Like, for me, Stefano Tsitsipas is a, a good shithouse. Like, I, I, I'm a, I like Sergio Ramos. I like Diego Costa. Like, I like people who sort of push the line a bit because I'm a competitive guy. And everyone who is competitive will that. That's the whole point of sport. But when you get called out on it, you kind of have to go, yeah, well, I'm allowed to do it within the rules. So, like, just deal with it. Um, and and he is. And, and to be fair, he kind of offered that defence. But I don't think that his coach should be going into bat for him. On, he's not even his coach. He's one of his coaches. I don't think Muratoglu should be out there going into bat for him saying that, you know, somehow this isn't fair and leave him alone and he's he's a delicate soul. It doesn't sit right with me. I think this is this is one of the the problems, as you're saying there, James, with I don't like using the term, but and some people will use it, playing the mental health card uh, yeah. in inverted commas. And I, I think that this that is really poor form, I think, for yeah. Muradoglu. It, it's it's really bad. And this was my concern at the start. Maybe I wasn't articulate enough to say it with with the, the whole Osaka thing and the Simone Beals thing, but this is what, what I was worried about. But it's also like like you what I don't get with with um go on with uh Sitsi Pass is like you say he's a good shit house, but he doesn't need to be. Like yeah. he's good enough to you get situations normally where shit house are like we forget that Sergio Ramos, like what you mentioned there for anyone who doesn't follow football, he's kind of a bit overrated as a footballer. He, he's not actually that good as a footballer, but he's but at the level he plays at, but his shit housing is exceptional, which brings him up to that level. He's yeah. not actually one of the best defenders in the world, but City Pass is good, and I don't. I honestly don't think that these these things that he's doing help him. He doesn't yeah. need his dad to tell him where to hit balls. He's a better tennis player than his dad. He's got a better brain than his dad has got. He doesn't need these breaks. He didn't need toilet breaks. He shouldn't need toilet breaks to go and beat Andy Murray. He's he's the third best tennis player in the world this year. So mm-hmm. I don't get why he's doing that. But Muratoglu's an idiot. I don't know what he's coming up with that kind of stuff for. Are we, are we getting a little bit concerned about? Sisipas's mentality at all recently? It seems. To yeah, I was. Bothered. I was actually think. I was thinking that it. It feels like he is starting to produce moments and performances, and and like you know, he he hired a mental coach, right? Like, there's a kind of 
an inbuilt admission there that he felt this was an area of his game that that wasn't perhaps strong enough. Um, and when you keep looking at these results, and, and look, the thing is that, and this kind of comes back to the toilet gate stuff, Zverev was asked about it in his latest press conference. And he made the very valid point. He's like, I'm not the first one to have complained about it. I was just the first big name to have complained about it. And and he's right. Um, I mean, Medvedev did, when they had that fight in uh, Miami in 2018, Medvedev did reference it there. But there was so much other stuff going on there that it didn't really make a difference. <laughs> I probably got lost at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was a huge amount of other aggro in that particular match. Um, but yeah, I think it is concerning because it, it's um it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It just kind of stimulates more and more. The more Tsitsipas does this stuff because he's not all there mentally in the game situation, the more people are going to have a go to him about it, the more it's clearly going to get to him. And it, it's this horrible, vicious cycle. I don't know about you, Calvin, but it, it, it is a concern. Yeah, it is. He's he's starting to look a bit, a bit mentally, a bit weak mentally from that point of view, which is a strange thing to say for somebody who's, number four in the world is he four or five mm-hmm. in the world um he's it, it, kind of and again he's kind of brought on himself and like you say james it's self-fulfilling prophecy and to the degree of like now does he think he needs to do these things or i don't know is he being told to do these things <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's another thing it's really really weird behavior if i'm honest like you get some people who i've known players like i say murray might have done it when he was young and you get players who'll throw it in every now and then it's now to the extent where you know that Sitsipas is going to do these things every, every match. match. When the set comes, he's going to do it. And yeah, it's a problem. He's, since the French Open, since he was two sets to love up in the French Open final, he's not been the same mentally, has he? That, I think that's fair no. to say. To play devil's advocate on that last point, do we think that it did work against Murray? I mean, Murray was so angry and annoyed about it. He wouldn't stop going on about it. Almost gave him this thing to kind of chunter at the whole time. Do we think it did offset his rhythm at all? I mean, it was still not a one-sided final set, but, you know, he was broken straight away. I know, as you say, he kind of got 40-15 up, but Murray was... He he dwelled on it. It, it, There's no question it kind of got in his head. Yeah, but Murray... No, I I don't know if that's valid. Like, Murray just chunters about anything. Like, you know what he's like. He just spends his life at the back of the court going, come on, what am I doing so bad? Um, but and the fact that it happened to be complaining about City Pass, like, like, because earlier in the match it was the shoes, and he was sat in his box shouting, you know, you never do the details, you never look at the, the, the little details, do you? Like, he just that's just who he is. Like, I remember talking to Evo about it once when I can't remember what, what match it was because it happened so often, but he was talking, complaining about something random, and he almost said, like, well, he said, like, oh, you know, I talk total crap on court. And he, he basically said, it's not fair to bring up what I say on court because it's all total bollocks, um, which I thought was quite funny. It's like being, you know, I've just been on a big lads weekend and someone the next morning be like, what were you talking about at 2 a.m.? It's like, you can't bring up stuff I said when I was drunk. That doesn't count, obviously. It's the same thing. So, so while I do agree with you on this point, the one, the only reason I'm kind of bringing that up now is that, the difference it felt to me on this one was how much he was going on at the tournament referee and kind of speaking to him every time, being like, we're sorting this out afterwards. Like, it did seem to be something that really... I'd be interested to know, like, how how much those discussions kind of took place and almost him doubling down the next day. Yeah. This clearly was something that wound him up. You know, things wind him up all the time, but he won't go on about them in press afterwards or let it linger. I think that... It was twofold. I think he was actually trying to get into Sitsipas's head a bit. I think he was trying to let him know that I'm I'm trying to I think he was using it as that. Um mm-hmm. but I also think which is fair, I think he does have a a, a it, there's a stuff afterwards in the press conference. It's a legitimate complaint he's got. Yeah. And I don't think that was necessarily linked. I don't think it had any outcome in I actually don't think it had any outcome into the match, him going to the toilet. I'm more sort of I'm more against Sitsipas doing it because it's not great to watch. Um, if I'm honest, at a time when tennis isn't doing great with viewers, it's not the sort of thing that you want happening. But I actually don't think he won that match or Murray lost that match. Like I say, if he'd have come back and Murray's chucked in a couple of double faults, the first two points, and then missed the forehand and he's loved 40 down, I think you can probably go, yeah, he's, he's done him there. But he was 4-15 up in the game. Like if Murray holds serve, then Murray holds serve, there's no breaks in the fifth set. 
So, <laughs> and it wasn't end that. That was the only break in the fifth set. Mm. Just, just one last quick question for you, Calvin. Actually, like in terms of Murray's complaints, a lot seems to be about the stopping. How, how hard is it to stop playing these sports for eight minutes and then kind of start again? Is, is it actually that difficult? Because I mean, I think, I think it's not. Well, it's they? I mean, physically, I don't think it's a problem. I think it's it, momentum is a big thing. I think that that that's it. If you if you if you manage to break momentum, and it can't. It's not just for the player that's winning. I think for the player that's the, for the player that's losing, it's it's also good to break momentum to the extent where, like, as a coach, you don't want them taking. I mean, it doesn't make any difference at the level that I coach. There's no one watching it anyway. But I, if 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 you can see that a player is getting particularly pissed off at the end of a set um, and they lose the set, I I pretty much want them to take a toilet break. They need to take the gas out of it a bit and the release valve. So you go like, why? Why wouldn't you take a break there? You you yeah. can do it. It's within the rules. But um, the problem with Sitsi Pass is, I think he's he's openly doing it more so. The tournament, the, the the courts that he's playing on most of the time, they have a toilet just outside the court. And I'm not buying the seven eight minutes to change the clothes either. That's a load of nonsense. Mm. And you don't need to do the practical change for us to prove that. <laughs> Well, so I mean, the thing trying to get Calvin to take his clothes off on Zoom for you. It's not <laughs> funny or pretty. It's not unknown, you know. It's not unknown that they take. Um, it's not unknown that they that they have a shower, um, a quick shower. They jump in there and have a minute. And yeah. I think they probably both did. I think maybe at the end of the second set, I think they both had maybe a quick shower. They both went off at that time. Right. Um, the thing is, a quick caveat on this: when you talk about the sweating, James Murray's yeah. kit. Uh, it's actually renowned because the brand uh, that he part owns, their kit doesn't have sweat wicking technology for some right. reason. So the players who've worn it have kind of ridiculed it that you can't play in it. It just feels absolutely wet through. And I've seen players who have practiced with players I coach wearing it, and literally after 20 minutes, the tops are wet through. <laughs> Good. Good advert for AMC there. Uh, Andy Murray's part-owned uh, clothing label. We've talked a lot about Stefan Tsitsipas. Uh, what we haven't talked about is the man who knocked him out, crucially. And, and this is one of the stories, and it's going to get bigger, uh, of the US Open. If you're a regular listener to the tennis podcast, you will know well the name Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, he is, and I, this is a heck of a stat, which I didn't realise until uh, just a couple of minutes ago. He's the youngest player to be a top three ranked player at the US Open since the inception of the modern ATP ranking system, which is just short of 50 years old. Um, he's also the youngest player to reach the fourth round of any major men's singles tournament since 1992. Uh, so he is, I mean, you know, an absolute sensation. We, we've talked a lot before about how good he is. He's only just, well, he turned 18 in May, I suppose. That's not that recently. But he is just an 18-year-old. He had his first tour win right before lockdown when he beat Albert Ramos Vinolas in a three-hour epic in uh, in Brazil, I think, in Rio on the clay. Um, he mullered Cam Norrie, quite frankly, in the first round. Uh, he then beat, um, I can't say his name, Rinderknech uh, in the second round and then ran into Tsitsipas. A brilliant five-set win. It, it was a proper ding-dong. He got bageled in the fourth set, came back, won a tie-break. I mean... This is this is an eighteen-year-old we're talking about. He, he he appears to have it all. The, the main surprise for me is that he's done it here at the U.S. Open and not somewhere else. Yeah, his, his hardcore record is like pretty average so far. Like I wouldn't yeah. have really seen him coming into that win. And you know, as you said, with that match with Sissipas, there were so many moments in that match where it felt like I mean, I, I watched the start, and then I was flicking between Evans and coming back, and obviously came back to mm. finish. Like. He he played lights out to start with, like he was untouchable, and he got himself a set and a break up, and then he kind of like Sissipas won momentum straight back off him, ripped it back, and it just felt like there were so many moments where you were like, Sissipas has got this now. That that's the match swinging. The inexperience is going to get him. Um, I think I'm pretty sure it was a breakdown in the third set, Alcaraz, and then still managed to win that in a breaker. Um, mm. So I, I don't know. It, it, this, to me, like I, I thought he was amazing, Alcaraz. I thought he was really, really good. But I don't, I don't think Sissipas should be losing that match. I think it's a really bad result for him. Like mm. against an eighteen-year-old who 
will have had these moments so many times in this match being like, oh, I'm so close to winning this or something's gone wrong. And Sissipas never then put his foot on the gas and took the next step. He, he just played a really weird match mentally for me, despite how well he played. I don't want to take any, anything away from him because he was brilliant, but I still think Sissipas lost it as much as he won it. Yeah, I, I think he, the thing is that, A, I think Alcaraz is, you know, going to win multiple slams. I think we all think that. Yeah. And it could be a pretty significant number. Uh, B, I mentioned that tour win February 2020. So that's more than, you know, 18, uh, yeah, more than 19 months ago. When he was still 17, he barely had played on tour. And he won a three-hour match in Brazil that finished at about two in the morning local time. This is not a normal 17-year-old. And you look at him, he's absolutely enormous. He looks like those blokes you get in like under 13 rugby who are already shaving and just run through people. <laughs> Except he's also absolutely huge. And, you know, he's been working with Juan Carlos Ferrero for, I guess, four years now, maybe. He, he's not just an 18-year-old. He would have played on tour all of last summer had, had last year been a normal thing. And he would have had more Grand Slam results to his name. And I actually think he, he seems like the kind of guy who the match experience hasn't changed him. He was always as good as this. He just happened not to be getting the results. So, yes, I, I think situationally there are some bad moments in Pass, but like, don't sleep on this guy. Like, he's a proper player. Yeah, to- I totally agree with that. Um, and as I said, certainly not diminishing his win or his quality. I think he's going to be absolutely brilliant. I just think, mm-hmm. and this is kind of going back to the previous point, Sissipas is losing matches he should be winning. And this yeah. was one of them. Um, there's other examples. Okay. Was it Chorich, where he had loads of match points? There was Van Vrinka, he had a load of match points mm-hmm. to win it. And you know, this one, it wasn't quite as dramatic as that. But there were so many points in this match where a top three player or someone as good as Sissipas is and should be, um, really should be taking the ball by the horns and ripping it out of this kid's hands as good yeah. as he is. I. I tweeted it when it was on, on, on Sitsi Pass when he played Murray, that peak Murray, or even a little bit past his peak Murray, would have destroyed Sitsi Pass had yep. they played the other day. I think the only reason Murray didn't win the other day was a little bit of belief. He's not been, he's not beaten a player as good as that for some time now. Um, and I think if he'd have come across Murray, 2016 Murray, if, if the current version of Sitsi Pass would have come across 2016 Murray, it would have been. Two, four, and three. That match in Murray's favour. Um, that, that's that, that, that. That's what I think. Uh, on Alcaraz, yeah, he, he's phenomenal. And the sort of comparisons will all come in as Nadal, just because he's French, uh, he's Spanish, and he's he's winning pretty young. The player he reminds most of, he reminds me most of, is young Agassi. His, his yeah. shots, the way he hits it, his backhand is almost identical to Agassi's in the the way he lines it up and absolutely leathers it. Probably doesn't take the ball as early as Agassi did when he was younger, but he hits just it's a big ball strike. He runs his opponents round, and yeah, he's phenomenal. And I think speaking about the way he responds, James, um, the thing what was most impressive to me, the little things that I look at is that right at the end of the match when he had he had six three in the tie break and he lost mm. both match points on his own serve. Yeah, and you think then, oh God, this is going to be pretty ugly. And when he lost the second one, there was no response from him emotionally at all. He walks back as if it was 15 all in the first game of the match um, and came back and then hit a great return and leathered a winner for the win. Uh, It's a phenomenal response. Yeah, and we, um, I mean, who knows how far he could go. Hopefully he's still in the tournament by the time you hear this because he's playing tonight against Peter Gujocic. He should be a massive favourite going into that match, quite frankly, but... uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to talk him up too much in case he then gets battered two, two, and one. But hopefully, that won't happen. I'm, I'm, I'm losing my head here just watching. I'm not actually watching the tennis. I've just got like the scores up next to me, and Van der mm. Schultz just missed two match points against Schwartzman on his serve. I'm like, I'm just losing my head here. This is. Uh, we should mention that the reason George is unusually invested <laughs> in a, a Dutch qualifier in the uh, U.S. Open draw is because, of course, George picked. In our fantasy tennis tournament, uh, George pitch, picked Botic van der, Schle- van der Z- I We need a nickname for him. Big Bot? I Botic don't know. Van der Zee? Maybe uh, Botic, yeah, Botic. that's much shorter. There's, there's, 
There's only so many people you know called Boktic. You can just call him. <laughs> yeah, you know because of his first name. He's like Felix. No, no yeah. tennis player calls Felix anything other than Felix. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't matter that none of us know how to say his surname, quite frankly. I mean, Calvin, you've you've come across him before on tour. He, he's obviously having a, a you know a run that is the best of his life by some distance. Uh, he's not been anyone particularly noteworthy, although Casper Ruud obviously was the number eight seed, um, albeit not necessarily one that deserved to be the number eight seed. He came back from two sets down in the first round to beat Carlos Berner. I mean, we talked when Car- when Aslan Karatsev had his golden run about how you'd seen him playing and, and Luke, your, the guy you're coaching at the moment, had played against him and thought, well, if he was consistent, he probably could be that level. I mean, is that Botic? Is is he someone who can strike the ball at a top 30 level? Yeah, he hits a huge ball. Um, he leathers it. He's been around sort of challenger circuits, around futures for a, a little while um, when I was coaching, but then he moved to challengers. And I've seen him play a few challenger matches since then. Um, the interesting thing was that earlier on today, one of the commentators on Amazon tweeted saying, that he reminded him a lot of Carrot Sev because he didn't, um, he came through qualifying, he hits a big ball and personality wise, he doesn't give anything away. And that could not be further from the truth. Anybody <laughs> who's seen Boktic van der Zanschlup uh, play, he's one of the, to put it kindly, one of the most um, emotionally visible players on the tennis court. Um, I've seen him have some real explosions and it doesn't mm. take much. Uh, I think it's easy to say that he doesn't give much away when he's two sets to love up against the top 20 player in the world at a Grand Slam. But I noticed he's five all in the fifth here. Five all in the fourth, having had match points. I'll be interested to see where his response is if he loses that fourth set. Um, you suggested that he might need a couple of new rackets. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and the, there might be some... Um, there might be a, an outside chance of an audible obscenity um, uh, <laughs> code violation. I have to say, I've, re- I've really enjoyed watching. You know, I wouldn't normally go out my way to watch a guy like Bosic van der Zandt, um, You know, just doesn't normally pop up on the kind of main screens. But he's a really interesting player, isn't he? He, he? To me, he seems like he does everything kind of quite slow motion when he's playing. Which, uh, in terms of, he seems to have quite a lot of time to get to the ball. He's quite a big, like, rangy bloke. And they're going on about how good his movement is. He, he doesn't seem to be like scampering loads he kind of just takes a few big long steps and he's got these big kind of long strokes he's a really interesting kind of watch um but he hits a heavy ball i think that's probably the way to to say it kind of comes through like slow and he's not kind of like carrots who's just a powerful guy and he's got a bit of snap on it i think the ball kind of knocks you back and you feel like you can't ever get on the front foot because his ball is is really heavy uh, and he's sort of languid like you say uh his, and his backhand's held up better than I kind of thought it was going to, to be honest, watching him. He looks, you know, if you tell Schwartzman's really like targeting that shot, he's obviously got this great forehand with great depth and power and then this big serve. And, but, but his backhand has taken quite a lot of peppering from Schwartzman today and it's a decent slice and sometimes kind of coming over it as well. I mean, I can't imagine it's always been that functional though. Yeah, um, I can't say I've seen... That much of enough to know that, but it's it's not a bad shot. His forehand's a weird looking shot that follows through over his head. Yeah, most yeah. of the time. Um, it's an interesting yeah. one. It's another like, I mean, I, I I don't want to overreact to a guy making a streaky run to the fourth round, but he, th- this is his fourth consecutive slam with a career best result, right? Like he he's never played a main draw Grand Slam before this year, and then he won a match at the French Open, he won a match at Wimbledon, I think he qualified for both. In fact, he was a lucky loser at Wimbledon. That's right. Mm. So, you know, he he is clearly on an improving uh, slot. So he'll be inside the top 100, I would think. In fact, I'm almost certain he'll be inside the top 100 he'll for be, the first time. He'll be outside top 60 if he does win this one. Um, yeah. uh, I'm, um, I'm pretty worried he won't. So maybe a name to watch, uh, especially if you're a big fan of uh, tennis scrabble. Well, uh, we should move on from the men's draw, though, because there's been almost as much drama in the women's draw. Uh, it's hard to know where to start, really. I suppose as a British podcast, a British-based podcast, we probably should start with Emma Raducanu, who has gone from being quite a big story in the tennis world and massive in the UK to being a huge global story. She's through, I mean, in unbelievable fashion. Like Not just that she's winning matches, 
beating Sarah Cerebus Torma, who's one of the form players in the women's game this year at sort of medium tour level, to be her love and one. And I think, did she have points for the double bagel? She, she at least had a game for the double bagel. Um, I mean, it's just, George, I, I, I know you picked her in fantasy. Um, so you obviously had some confidence in her, but lots of other people did too. You, did you seriously think fourth round was realistic? Well, we, we spoke last week, me and Calvin, about this. And the big threat to Raducanu was obviously Jen Brady in round one. And I just, mm. given Brady's injuries, I felt that Raducanu had a chance. Yeah. But but the feeling mm-hmm. I had was that if she won that match, there's no reason she couldn't go this far. She's good enough to beat anyone outside the top 20, I think, at the minute. Um, and, you know, she'll she may well get a chance to prove she can beat people inside the top 20 this tournament as well. But, you know, Sara Sariva's Tormo, okay, she doesn't have the biggest weapons, but what she does is fight for every single point. And I'm pretty sure she holds the the record in inverted commas for the two longest WTA tour matches this year, which she certainly yeah. did a couple of months ago. So she's someone who sticks around, makes it difficult, you know, quite often... Even stuff like just lobbing big moon balls in, that, that can be a tactic to frustrate. You know, she's she's not someone who often is seen rolling over one and love. And, you know, in 70 minutes, you know, Emma was just too good, too clean, too strong. Um, point. And she looked a level apart. Um, obviously, now we're back at the stage where, you know, she, she got to at Wimbledon. And then it's always tougher. You're coming into players now who've won three... Grand Slam matches. Rogers is just fresh of beating Ash Barty, and Rogers is a good player. Um, mm. I, I know people will kind of look at that being like it's great for her to avoid Barty, but Rogers is in some decent nick and plays well on these US hard courts. So I think that'll be tough. Um, but we've said this time and time again in the women's game: these draws open up, mm. and the best players, the two players you'd have picked to avoid, are gone. They're gone. Everyone else is beatable. And Emma yeah. just has to go into it like that. There's no reason. I know it's going to sound excessive, but there's no reason she can't win this tournament because there's no one in there who wins religiously. No one who wins consistently. So mm. why not? Calvin, why not? Um, <laughs> I don't know why not. I mean, it's it's an interesting run that she's had. Uh, and she's she's a fantastic player. I sort of see, I've known her since she was 12. Um, I picked her earlier in this year. Um, somebody asked me which which player I thought was going to break through, which which was the next tennis British tennis player that was going to break through. And I said Radicanu then. That was about a year ago um, um, I did at the start of lockdown. Um, but it's interesting in that she's reached quarter, last 16 of the uh, of two Grand Slams without playing a seeded player in either mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Um, and there's no, in inverted commas, good draws in these tournaments. But what, what she has had in both... Um, in both tournaments in Wimbledon and here is that she's had players who she can match up pretty well against. And in terms of like her game style and her ball striking, she it's a pretty clean ball, Emma. But I'd say if we were to put it in boxing terms, she's kind of a hard hitting middleweight um, mm. and she's not had to go up against any heavyweights. And I think that that's where Brady, I don't a fully fit Brady wasn't a good draw for her. Yeah. Because what Emma can kind of do is she hits pretty big herself. She's very skillful. So if she can get in the rally, you'd give her a good chance against anybody in, in mm. the rally because she can move players round, she can finish the ball off, that type of thing. And I think the, t- the last two players she's played, they're pretty good draws for her because those girls are kind of girls who just make balls um, yeah. and are pretty solid. And Emma's always going to be a problem for those ones. I I think her main issue is going to be against people who can just blow her off the court. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But, yeah, still, you know, I, I don't want to get too overexcited about it because, because again, we, we come back to this thing about I've seen a few, and she's only eighteen, and it's like yeah, and so is Leila Fernandez, who just beat um, the world number one uh, or mm. world current yeah. US Open champion. Sorry, um, so he's Corey, so Corey Goff and that type of thing. So it's not so unheard of. Yeah, uh, in the women's game. Yeah, and and you know, so is Carlos Alcaraz, and he's one of the yeah. like most physical guys you, you're going to see. Um, she's she's played brilliantly. Uh, even if she loses to Shelby Rogers, she's going to go up fifty places in the world rankings. Um, she she will be up to a hundred. Uh, I mean, the way she's playing, you know, is she a, she's a top fifty player already? We think on level. 
I'd say so, yeah. I think around about there. She's comfortably the current best female British player. Um, yeah. There's no question about that. I think <laughs> it's a strange one. Like I say, she could play... Um, she When we say that she's she hasn't played a seed and that she's got to the fourth round without playing a seed, she could feasibly get to the Australian Open. And this would take a phenomenal run and players to pull out. She could feasibly get seeded. Um, <laughs> if she, if she, got, if she got top 50 and then had another good run. If she wins another round here, maybe then as a good end to the year, she could get to kind of like 40. And, and then once minutes. you're seeded, you don't have to play seeds in don't the first play two seeds rounds. Until, until the fourth round. She, so, might, uh, she, might, she might win like 11 Grand Slam matches before she plays a seeded player. It'd be brilliant. Yeah, it could go in one of those weird stats. Like somebody else said, I've seen the other day that um, Bianca Andrescu, well, she's more now, but Bianca Andrescu is the only player ever to have a, I think now she'll have a 10-0 and 0 yeah. US yeah. Open record. Yeah. And no one else ever had it. No one else ever had a 7-0 and 0 record. So wow. anything after that is um, is where she's at. Remarkable. If she does come through Ends Rogers, by the way, then it, it's guaranteed seeds all the way, which is not that heard of in the in the women's game in recent time. But it'll be Fiontech or Benchich next, which, you know, both of them have won big titles in the last couple of years. Then Karolina Pliskova, Pavlyuchenkova, Sakari or Andrescu in the... Semis. I don't want to look too far ahead, Kat, but mentioning um, Belinda Bencic and Iga Svontek, I mean, that, that presumably, Calvin, is the kind of bad matchup you were talking about, someone who can take the racket out of a hand. Either of, the, yeah. either of those, uh, Frank. Yeah, and I once actually saw, the first time I saw uh, Iga Svontek play, she was destroying Emma Raducanu at Junior Wimbledon. So um, <laughs> I, don't, okay. I don't think that Emma will really want to go and play against her again. Uh, I think that was yeah. love and one. Um, yeah. And again, there's only a year between them um, when mm. we talk about ages. I'd be quite pleased for fantasy if they could both set up that match as I have both of them. So <laughs> every finalist would be very handy. So I'm supporting that. Yeah. Uh, for the record, I wasn't going to bring it up, but I have to now. Um, I have one player left. In <laughs> I have been absolutely obliterated. There's only two other people who've only got one. I mean, I'm still in the top 100. That's the only thing I'm clinging on to. And I have Novak Djokovic, which weirdly lots of other people don't have. Um, but I, I've just, I mean, I've had spectacularly poor luck. Shapovalov, Ilya Ravashka, Petra Kvitova, just throwing matches away with the weight of my money around their neck. It's horrendous. Um, but, you know, that, that happens. Um, um, we'll come back to a little bit more on fancy tennis, but I want to talk about Naomi Osaka first because she's obviously been uh, one of the biggest stories in tennis all year. Uh, she was obviously a, a big story coming in here. Uh, as the US Open champion. She only won one match in the end because she, she beat Buzkova in the first round. She got a walkover from Olga Danilovic in the second round and was then beaten by uh, Leila Fernandez in um, a match that I watched the last set of, sort of um, surprisingly, because it was about four in the morning UK time, but I had um, just got in. So it was <laughs> ideal timing, uh, watching with a, a late night beer. Uh, it was remarkable. I mean, Fernandez was, as far as I can remember, um, absolutely flawless uh, and or pretty nerveless anyway, which was kind of in um, in contrast to Osaka at the other end, who says she might take a bit more time off um, from tennis. She, from what she said in her post match, um, and you know, she she defined herself in tears again. Like, I like to talk about mental health as an injury because I think that's how we should deal with it that's how we should view it like a like a physical injury it's a mental injury and if this was a physical injury I would say Naomi Osaka is still not moving properly because she doesn't look to have fully recovered from her hamstring injury I think it's the same thing I think she's still not the tennis player she can be because she she hasn't fully recovered or or made progress on on whatever the the anxiety and mental issues that are out there I think you saw that on the court and you saw it off the court afterwards yeah I think it's hard to disagree with that I mean it's going to be really interesting to see which way this all goes from here because, to be honest, the last break didn't do much for her. Um, you know, I don't know if she just rushed back because of the significance of lighting the Olympic torch and then it would have yeah. been hard to then step away from the US Open having gone and played the Olympics. I, I do wonder if in an ideal world, had this not been the Olympics in Japan, whether she'd have played for the rest of the year. Um I, I don't know. I mean, this is such a this is such a difficult situation um, because we just don't know 
it's impossible to know. It's impossible to know what exactly she's feeling, how how much it's impacting on her game, how much she just is out of love with tennis. I mean, she's kind of said that this week, hasn't she? That she she doesn't enjoy it. Um, and, and that's a pretty pretty hard place to come back from, really. Um, I mean, S- Serena, to be fair, there were moments in her career where she kind of stepped away, weren't there? Where she kind of stepped back when tennis didn't seem to be a big priority. And she eventually, you know, she had these then spurts of coming back and being really strong. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to say... There's no way back, but it, it's going to be a really interesting balancing act for her to kind of work out who she is, what she wants, and just also to kind of look after herself, I guess. Like, you know, it's just, it's such a hard, hard it's, balancing act to get right, isn't it? It's hugely hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard on so many levels as well, you know, because she's 23, right? I think it's a funny age for anyone because you, you sort of, you feel a bit more of an adult, an independent adult, you know, you're usually establishing your career and she is, and you're kind of for the first time really working out who you want to be. And I feel like as a tennis player, you sometimes have even more of that to do. And it comes up in her documentary when she says, if I'm just winning tennis matches and that's everything, then what am I? Um, But once I start losing tennis matches, I should say, then, you know, you kind of lose who you are. Um, And yeah, I feel hugely sorry for her. And, you know, you, you hate to say it, but it would be one of the biggest sort of sporting tragedies if this was the end of Naomi Osaka's kind of career as the very best tennis player in the world. You know, we, you'd hate to look back at this moment in 10 years and go, oh, you know, like, like we do with other sporting people sometimes and go, what if, what if, what if? You hate this to be a what if moment. And, you know, she will take time away and I hope she gets professional help and I hope, I hope, you know, proper professional help because I think sometimes people just think, Oh, if I go away and chill out for a bit, that'll get better. Um, but hopefully she, she realizes that the way to deal with this is professionally and not kind of casually. And yeah, to kind of take your injury analogy earlier, I mean, the similar kind of what if it's, it's almost like what if Del Potro had never had like two wrist surgeries? What if Del Potro yeah. had, not had these big knee problems? You know, Del Potro could easily have won, Probably not an exaggeration to say he could have won like three, four, five Grand Slams easily. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. Um, and you know, a physical thing is perhaps well, I don't know. I was going to say perhaps harder to come, or or at least it's, if if something is so structurally damaged, there's no way back. But that can be true of your mental health as well. I mean, it's just. I hope it's not like that. And I hope this is just a a short period of struggle for her. But yeah, it's yeah, going to be a really interesting road back. Um, we should, I suppose, give some credit to, to Leila Fernandez, though, yeah. because it's never an easy... You don't choose who you play against. You can only beat what's in front of you. And it's a high-pressure situation. Even if you know that the player at the other end is going through one, you know, she's she's done a job and she's got a real chance in, in the rest of the draw, Calvin, doesn't she? I mean, you know, she'll probably lose in the next round now. I've said that. But nevertheless, it's a it's a big breakthrough for a player who we, I think we all think has got, got a big future. Yeah, she's a good player. There's no question about it. I think, you know, it's one of those that you imagine a year from now, she could easily be top 10 in the world. And, and you're, it's not so much of a shock then, the, mm. the women's game, that someone else in the top 10 beats, the you know, someone who's, say, eight in the world beats someone who's three in the world or whatever. Um, yeah. And I think that could easily be the case. With Osaka, I'd say it's a bit, without me to sound doom and gloom on it, you wonder where how this gets better because you think we're now into this circle of, when she comes back, the same questions will get asked and then she's going to lose tennis matches again. And then, you know, I think that she's quite an emotional girl as well. It's, you know, you sort of, it's one of those. I mean, I, I think it's probably best if, if she takes a break and it's like, yeah, take a break. There's no problem with it, but no doubt there'll be a whole circus around it now. And yeah. um, people asking about, and now you've got this whole, when is she coming back? How long is this break? And, um, yeah, it's. I do worry about it because I think you know you look in, you go, well, where where kind of does it end, really? Unless she goes down the Serena Williams route, she could do that. It could be one of those where Serena Williams for the last ten years has played about eight tournaments a year. Mm. Osaka could, in theory, just do that. I was actually just going to make that point that 
but the funny thing about this is if you compare, like, if you look at Serena's schedule for a long time, US Open is the end of the season. She doesn't play after yeah. that. <laughs> it's kind of like, you, you wouldn't get people being like, oh, where's Serena been? What's she been doing? It's such a shame that there's this whole, you know, narrative and questions that are going to come from it because it, it, it wouldn't be that unusual for the top uh, female tennis players to just be like, it's my season over. Rafa's done it quite a lot in the last few years. Okay, normally a bit more openly in terms of like there's an injury problem or something but you know it is just you're right I mean there's almost you imagine going to be this kind of like worry about coming back like how am I going to handle it and Mm. sometimes you know tennis is one of those funny sports because it's normally drilled into you that or you hear players say all the time like if you lose one week it's fine because you've got next week to sort it out and almost like just getting back out there is yeah. the solution you don't stop because you know and the same is true of winning you don't have long enough to dwell on winning because you're about to lose first round next week um and i just feel that for someone who's kind of who was doing that for a long time in their life to then kind of stop and it, it does magnify things and it will magnify things from her own end and from people looking outside in uh and to kind of, you know, it just it just makes it a little bit harder, I think, almost. So I'm not saying she should just carry on and go off and swing around wherever for the next two weeks, but you know, it'll. Be, I imagine there'll be a build-up. Like, what mm. what's it going to be like when I go back? How am I going to handle this? When there could perhaps be an argument to say, best way to handle it is to get the familiarity back and play in the smaller tournaments and kind of build it up. But it's just so hard to say. But how she is, I guess. I, I almost wonder whether she might have been better off just not saying anything and just taking a break. Like, yeah. does she have to announce that like she's um, that she needs to take this break? Maybe just go, you know, sort of treat that press conference as normal and, you know, say that you've got to, to do what I'm sure that a lot of players have done, say that you've got a little bit of a quad strain or something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, no questions can be asked then. Like, what? It's almost like now... It's going to be the same when she comes back. We're just going to have the same questions. The flip side of that, I guess, is it's raising awareness for mental health, which there is some merit in as well. But um, yeah. in her situation, I don't know what... When she did it, I thought, like, well, you don't need to tell people you're having a break. Yeah, I, I, you, I just want to come back to, to what, what she does now and, like, how to do it and how to come back and deal with all those questions. That that should be the the conversation she's having with a therapist or with a sports psychologist or, you know, I've been through therapy therapy a couple of times myself. And the most important thing you do is you have those conversations and you say, what happens when this happens? And then you like, you sort of work it through in your brain. It's like, it's like going into a classroom and, and like learning how to do something. You wouldn't just walk out and do it. You talk about how to do it first. And then you do drills, you know, Calvin, if I came to you and said, I, I can't hit a backhand, you wouldn't just, ping balls at my backhand until they got better you'd be like well let's do this and let's drill this and then you realize i'm just rubbish at tennis and give up but you know it's the same it's the same concept you need to drill yourself and learn how to do it and i i don't know what her treatment program is going to be or, or what it is but i think it's clear that she needs one and and as long as she's taking it seriously and i'm sure she is then then she'll be fine whether as a professional tennis player or not is another thing it's, again, we, we come back to this area, though, of like, I'm not diminishing what she's saying whatsoever, but is there a chance that she just doesn't enjoy tennis? You know, there's there's a fair chance that, you know, she's she's in pretty good shape mentally and he's just been doing something that she doesn't enjoy. And Well, yeah, it do, I mean, from watching that documentary, it doesn't feel like she's had a huge amount of choice in it. Yeah, so you know, it might be one of those, right... I don't need a therapist. I don't need to play tennis. Like yeah. you know, I'll, I'll go and do something else. And like I've I've known players like that. Many, you know, usually junior players who they just don't enjoy playing tennis, and that's the problem solved. Um, no, I mean, I, I was she won't have to work again. She's already gone. If she won't have to work again, she could just not play. Yeah, I, I was gonna. It, it's, it's not an exact comparison. But I was just gonna float it. You no, know, could this end up being a bit of a Borg situation where? Yeah. Just, just yeah. decide. I'm done. And Kyrgios is kind of similar boat in many ways, isn't it? You, you wouldn't be surprised if he just kind of jumped out the game straight away. You don't feel they've got this longing, lasting love for it, like maybe a Federer or a Rafa, where they just feel like they can't exist without. 
Um, you know I'm going to have to come in now and say you can't be comparing Kyrgios to Borg and Osaka who actually <laughs> win things, actually win things and actually train. The interesting thing with the Borg thing is actually, as I've read, I read a bit about, I read a couple of books about him earlier this year, and like that often, appropriate of nothing here, often gets said that that's what happened. It was actually, I think the the sort of tennis world had figured out how to beat him, yeah. uh, and he was he wasn't. I think he lost like his last five matches to McEnroe. Um, and lost to Lendl a couple of times. And I think there was a sort of, in his situation, although he was young, I think he also thought it might have, it might have been a tennis decision as well. There's, there's, I'm not winning many more slams at this rate. So kind of like a Roddick getting pumped by Novak and being like... I can't yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, he, he was, like say, yeah, he'd, he'd lost the, um, the magic had gone somewhat from Borg. When, and he wasn't enjoying it either, so... Speaking of not enjoying it, can I just say I'm pulling my hair out of this Van der Zand Schultz match. You're into a fifth set, aren't you? Yeah, he missed two match points at the end of that one. He's he's got break points for two love now. I've I just not believe. I don't know if you saw me tweet this earlier, but the guy had lost the first set of every single match to this point. So winning the first one earlier, I was like, I'm pretty sure that's like a bad omen. But if he loses from all these positions, I'm going to be so I mean, upset for him. I've noticed quite a lot of his results because he has a long name, basically, and so they kind of stick <laughs> out. And I can't remember him winning a match in straight sets. Like, I, he just, he, uh, no matter what level, actually, I'm just looking. He, he got to the semi-final of a challenger in August in uh, Germany. Uh, he won three matches, all in three sets, and then lost in straight sets in the final. The guy just doesn't do straight sets. It's just not his thing. Uh, even in qualifying, in qualifying, he didn't win a single match in straight sets. Oh, oh, he was a set down in every single match. This is the first time okay. in seven matches that he's been uh, won the first set. He's he got one of those been... names. He's got one of those names as well, where you almost always miss out a constant. Like it's yeah. Boktix van der Sandschlup, but it's always like you'll always call him Boktix van Sandschlup. Yeah, or you lose one van der Schlup. Or it's like the uh, the Iranian president uh, Ahmed Ah Ahmadinejad. You just can't say it without pausing first. It's almost yeah. impossible. Um, there, as I say, the reason George is so invested is because he's in his fantasy tennis team. And for once, George is going quite well. Uh, he's tied for fifth if the uh, results are up to date, which I rather think they are because that's my job. Um, but leading is Queen 4B, tied with In the Dirt Like a Dog, who's been up there the whole time. Um, Helen Humphreys, Mr. Murray team. Uh, are in third, just a point behind. And she has seven players left, by the way. Um, so might be in slightly better shape. Uh, they are two points. The leaders are three points clearer, George. Mr. Murray, two points clear. Sets in the city. What I find really interesting is that our top three all have picked Daniil Medvedev over Novak Djokovic, yep. uh, who's just gone two sets uh, to love up against Dan Evans. I just saw Medvedev win the second set with a, a second serve that he hit at about 130 miles an hour. I was going to say this earlier, like this genuinely could come down to the men's final, this one. Mm. It's actually a good split on Medvedev and Djokovic. And yeah. I think, is it is it two point, is it 1.5 points for the winner? Yeah, the exactly. So there's actually the potential it might swing down to that final match, which would be quite interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, if you do want to check on the standings, uh, they'll be in our Twitter bio at Love Tennis Pod, of course. I, I wrote in my notes for this that I was feeling pretty smug about this fantasy tennis and ready to come and lord it over you until the shocking discovery today that my girlfriend, who is not interested in tennis at all, uh, she is level with me on <laughs> and has an extra player. So I'm on the brunt of a very embarrassing result despite this being a pretty glorious tournament for me and just want to say as well i'm pretty sure i've now wrapped up my year-long curry house bet that should mean i get a free meal at the end of the year and lots of well food. i mean that's all we're really interested in george the listeners are just so invested in your eating habits um <laughs> you're in particular trouble by the way if oscar otter beats matteo berrettini because she might win the whole blowing thing i know um She's she's a, she's got a real differential in him. Did she, did she just did she just pick random names? Yeah. So we kind of spoke about it. She said like my picks were kind of like osmosis, like people I've heard you talk about before. Uh, I see. I think she's got Alcaraz in there, if memory serves. Yeah. Seen. And she's got Yannick Sinner. She knew Monfils. Um, she knew I'd interviewed Andreescu. She liked Coco Goff. I don't think I've ever mentioned Claire Lou. I don't know where the hell she got that. <laughs> That's the one that punished her in the end. 
and obviously yeah. she knows about Raducanu, but um, yeah, she's enjoying it anyway, so that's that's good. Good, good. and uh, I hope you are uh, as well at home. I think that's probably all we've got time for this week. Uh, as always, a packed show during a, a Grand Slam. We will be back next week uh, with a result from obviously men's and women's final, and a result more importantly from the fantasy tennis. If you follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod, uh, the link is in our bio to the spreadsheet. Um, it's not particularly pretty, but it does the job and it is vaguely colour-coded. But that's all from us. As always, take care, stay safe and uh, try and enjoy yourselves. And come on, Bottich. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.